In a moment, uh, Andy's going to come up and preach to us from Luke chapter 15, looking at what is the gospel. If you weren't here this morning, Andy Bannister is uh, the director of Solar Center for Public Christianity and is part of our congregation here. Before he comes up, let me pray for him. Our great God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this evening. We have time to look at the question of what is the gospel to remind ourselves of how good it is or to perhaps hear it for the first time. May all of us here be refreshed, we ask, as we look at Luke chapter 15. Be with Andy as he proclaims to us the excellencies of Christ from your word. We ask all these things for the glory of Christ. Amen. Andy. Thanks, Greg. Well, uh, good evening. Good evening. You are awake. That's wonderful. That's a good start. I have to say, during the notices and the prayer, I was sitting there thinking to myself, how is it David Robertson gets Spain and I get Dundee in November to go, I'm doing something wrong. Costa del Solas, I guess is all I can say. Um, well, privileged to be uh, sharing uh, with you this evening. It's been a really busy weekend for us at the Solas Centre for Public Christianity that I, uh, I, I lead, uh, along with David and the rest of the team. We had a, it was great to hear uh, the prayer for Central Baptist. We were there yesterday for a big conference and about 300 people from all over Scotland actually coming to hear about how they could share their faith with their friends uh, more effectively. And that was a privilege to see the enthusiasm there of the men and women of all ages. But this evening, the question I really want to think about is we, we talk, particularly when we think about mission and evangelism, about sharing the gospel, but what is uh, the gospel? And I'm reminded as I was preparing for tonight of um, about two weeks ago, I had the privilege of being down at the other end of the country. I was in Plymouth uh, for a week of ministry, and I'd asked the church there to kind of fill the diary and to make it you know, worth the airfare coming down, and uh, they took that, me at my word, and we, they asked me to speak 21 times in six days. I remember standing up on the first night to speak at a church, and they read out the schedule for the week, and I sat there in the pew thinking, I feel sorry for that guy, looking at the diary, and then I realized it was, I was that guy. Um, but one of the things we did at the end of the week that was really interesting is the church, they organized a men's breakfast, an evangelistic men's breakfast, and we had about 50 uh, men and a couple of bonus women who snuck in at uh, the back um, come for this, prayer bre- this breakfast, and um, about half of them were not Christians. And the topic they asked me to speak on was, how can we be happy? Really interesting question uh, in today's world. So I did my best to address that question and to show how the gospel answered it. And it was really interesting. Afterwards, um, got talking to a gentleman who came up and introduced himself. said he had no form of religious faith, no form of Christian faith, was probably an agnostic. But he said, Andy, your talk has really resonated with me this morning. I want to share something with you. He said, I've really been thinking and wrestling with this question of happiness. And he said, actually, for the last 10 years, he said, I decided that the life goal I would set myself was to pay the mortgage off early. And so I worked every hour that uh, was available, took overtime, took a second job. And he said, finally, just three weeks ago, I was able to pay the mortgage off nine years early. And he said, when I walked into the building society to write that last check and deliver it, he said, I thought that would be the happiest day of my life. And I went to the bank, I wrote the check, I delivered it, it was debt-free, and he said, I've never felt so empty in my entire life. The dream didn't deliver. He said, I wasn't happy, I was miserable. He said, Andy, how do we find happiness? What a question. You see, it's interesting 
that our culture is experiencing something of happiness frenzy, actually. Uh, if you go into any bookstore and sort of uh, browse along the self-help section, you'll see lots of books on happiness. And in fact, over one and a half million people every week, every week, type the word happiness uh, into Google looking for some kind of answers. And we live in a culture that tells us happiness is what you need and the way to be happy is to, uh, is to be fulfilled, to have possessions, to be successful, to have relationships, to have friends and influence and power uh, to pay the mortgage off nine years early. Those are the kind of answers that we hear from our culture. Interestingly, other people pursue happiness in terms of moral image, in terms of looking moral. We're concerned with what people think about us. Many people in our culture think you know, the answer is we want to look good, we want to look rich, we want to look successful, we want to look beautiful, we want people to notice us. The social media like uh, Facebook and Twitter play into that. You know, we have to update our Facebook page, we have to update our social media status. I've even caught myself doing that sitting on the uh, lavatory occasionally, not quite sure why people need that status update, but there we are. Sometimes, sometimes interestingly, we play the image game in terms of moral image. We want to look upright. We want to look moral. We want to look good. We want people to look at us and say, my word, there goes a good person. You know, that is a particular trap for religious people to fall into. Religions like Islam operate on that basis. It's all about keeping the commandments, earning enough merit, and so on and so forth. But as Christians, let's be honest, we're not immune from that challenge either. If we're not careful, our faith can drift into being all about being moral, appearing righteous, maybe even feeling morally superior to the other people around you in church or to the culture. Neither of those things, pursuing happiness in possessions or power or influence or success or money or or, or whatever it is, or pursuing happiness in being good and moral and so forth, neither of those were God's intent. And here is the thought I want us to hold as we open up Scripture uh, this evening. It is as possible to be far from God pursuing happiness and hedonism as it is pursuing morality and self-righteousness. You can be as far from God trying to be moral as you can trying to be happy. And in a very, very famous passage of Luke's Gospel, Jesus addresses both of these tendencies in the human heart head-on in one of his most famous stories. So if you have a Bible with you uh, this evening, feel free to open to Luke chapter 15, or if you have your Bible on your smartphone, uh, you can open it there as well. And also, if the sermon bores you, you can play Candy Crush Saga. But I can see you from up here, so I can see two people already on Google, but there we are. You know who you are. Never do that joke ever again. Now, Luke chapter 15. Luke begins uh, in verse 1 by setting the scene, and this is what he says. He tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, of course, you probably know the context here, right? The Pharisees, highly religious, highly moral, highly concerned with keeping God's law, and not just keeping God's law, but making sure that everybody knew they were keeping God's law. So when they see Jesus, a well-known rabbi and religious teacher, welcoming and forgiving and eating of all things with tax collectors and sinners, they were outraged. The Pharisees are thinking to themselves, doesn't Jesus know what these people are like? Doesn't he know that they are living lives of unfettered pleasure, the pursuit of happiness, unrestrained hedonism, and they decide they ought to tell him. 
So this is the challenge that Jesus has to respond to. And it's interesting to see in what comes next that he's going to respond to this, this challenge from the Pharisees, not by giving a lecture, but by telling a, a parable. Now, it's interesting that we tend to think of what comes next in our Bible as three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But this is actually one story with three parts, which is why, in fact, Luke introduces this story to us, with, and Jesus told them a story. Jesus intended us to think of these three stories together, interplaying and playing off each other. And it's worth when you have time. We're not only going to look at the third part of this uh, three-part story, but when you get home sometime, you have a spare hour or so, it's worth reading Luke 15 three or four times through and spotting the connections between the three parables. But we're going to focus on the third of uh, these three uh, little interconnected stories, perhaps the most famous one, and it begins in verse 11 this way. There was once a man who had two sons. Do you know, it's interesting that Jesus introduces this part of the story with uh, there was a man who had two sons. If you have a Bible, and it's like mine, you've probably got a section heading between verse 10 and verse 11 that says something like the parable of the prodigal son. I think that's certainly the case in my uh, NIV, Northern Irish version, has that, uh, that heading in there. Um, if you've got a pen with you this evening, um, you feel free to take your pen and cross out that title, um, and especially that works really well if you're reading on a digital Bible, because then you'll wreck your device for, forever. Um, the section headings and chapter divisions, uh, Sinclair was talking about this this morning, in fact, when he was preaching, those chapter divisions and uh, section headings were added to our Bibles in the 14th century, and sometimes they're unhelpful, and they're unhelpful here, because this is not the story of one prodigal son, this is the story of two lost sons, each of whom illustrates a different way to be alienated from God. We're going to find one is a lawbreaker, one is a law keeper, and we tend to focus on the first son, the younger one, the prodigal son. But it's interesting right at the start that Jesus is aiming this parable at Pharisees and tax collectors. That's the audience. They are the intended recipient for this message. So we're going to ignore the second son, the law keeper, at our peril. So if you've still got your pen out, and if you really obsessively like your Bible to have titles or you, uh, you have all kinds of issues, you could replace the title, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, maybe with the story of a compassionate father and two lost sons. It doesn't trip off the tongue. It doesn't fit into the space that the previous title was, so you have to write really small, but it's more accurate. So let's read on. The younger son said to his father, "'Father, give me my share of the estate.'" Younger son's request is, uh, is shocking. In asking for his inheritance now, he's basically wishing his father was dead. He's bored of life. Um, he wants fun. He wants adventure. He wants really wild things. He, you know, he wants some adventure. And he's bored of waiting for his dad to die. So he basically comes right out and says it. He basically says, you know, Dad, it's boring hanging around, working on the family farm, waiting for you to die, and you look far too well. So why don't we pretend that you're dead? Why don't we pretend that you're dead, imagine that you were, and proceed accordingly. So can I have my inheritance now, please? Interestingly, that given that the Father represents God in the parable, I wonder if one thing that Jesus is pointing out right at the start is that human beings often behave as if we wish that God were dead. Human beings often behave as if they wish that God were dead. We want our independence. We want our autonomy. We don't want the responsibility and the consequences that would follow if God were real. So, for example, the uh, American atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote this. He said, it isn't just that I don't believe in God. 
It's that I hope there isn't a God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Very, very stark words. I appreciate his honesty in saying that he really simply doesn't want there to be a God. Now, within the story, within Middle Eastern culture, the father's response should have been predictable. All the listeners hearing this story would have expected at this point the father to pick up his big, hoary, wooden walking stick and beat some discipline into his younger son. His younger son has been utterly offensive, utterly, utterly, unbelievably disrespectful, and one would expect some uh, corporal punishment here. This is not, though, what the father does. We read on. He divided his property between them. Notice something very interesting here. The father divides his money, his property, between them. The younger son gets his share of the inheritance. The older son gets his share of the inheritance. In fact, in Middle Eastern culture, the elder son would have got more. Probably the elder son would have got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would have got one-third. So notice what we don't hear at this point. The older son doesn't turn to his father and say, Beloved father, please don't do this. Please, dad, keep your money. He doesn't do that. He takes the money as well. Culturally, they both take the money. Culturally, the older son gets more of the the, uh, family inheritance. Furthermore, interestingly, culturally, it should have been the elder son's job at this point to act as family mediator. The older son would have had the responsibility. He should have, is the one who should have at this point stepped in and said to his father, Father, leave this with me. I'll deal with it. And he should have reasoned with his younger brother, talked him round, helped him understand why it wasn't appropriate, maybe even take him for a long walk with a robust conversation in the middle of it. He doesn't do that. He takes the money too. Remember, this is not the story of one lost son. This is the story of two lost sons. We read on, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Both sons have humiliated their father at this point. The younger son has wished his dad dead and asked for the inheritance, and the elder brother, the more responsible one, has shirked his responsibility as the family mediator. But now the younger son takes what is probably the more responsible route and hightails it away from the home and the village. You see, in Middle Eastern villages, small communities, gossip spreads fast. So probably if this was at breakfast, this conversation, by lunchtime, everybody in the entire village knows what's happened. The whole family is a laughing stock, and so the younger son liquidates his assets. His father's wealth would probably be in land and flocks and herds, so he has a fire sale, makes a lot of money as quickly as possible, and then legs it out of there as fast as he can go. Interestingly, it's important to point out the phrase wild living here, if you look at the underlying Greek here, this doesn't imply immorality. Rather, it implies uh, living well. As a typical Middle Easterner, the younger son probably spent much of his money acquiring a reputation for himself, throwing feasts and parties, giving gifts, and so on and so forth. Maybe he bought himself a couple of nice things, you know, some new clothes, a a new camel with a V8 engine and chrome trimmings and so on and so forth. Now, after he had spent everything, we read on, verse 14, there was a severe famine in that country and he began to be in need. You know, famines in the ancient world were a terrifying prospect. Here in the West, we are used to readily available food. There's a McDonald's or something on every corner. If things go wrong, we have government support, we have welfare, we have charities, there's a safety net. 
In the ancient world, in the Middle East, there, there was no safety net. Uh, there were no sort of resources there to back you up if you didn't have them of your own. So famine spelt doom. No resources, you died. And so the younger son is in trouble, and we read on, verses 15, and on into verse 16. He went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Of course, in a famine, work is likely to be scarce. This uh, young man probably has to hunt hard for a job. Maybe he has to nag and, and pester somebody to give him a job. Maybe the citizen he approaches doesn't really want this funny-looking foreign guy working for him, so the citizen of that country offers him a job he thinks the young man, man won't take. The problem, of course, is not that feeding pigs is dirty, but the man is a Jew, and feeding and engaging with pigs means you are unclean. But the man, the young man is so desperate, he takes the job. He has now lost everything. He's alienated from his father's house, alienated from the village and his community, estranged, hungry, poor, and now religiously unclean. He has literally hit rock bottom. So verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here am I starving to death. The text literally at this point says he came to himself, although interestingly, his first thought is not his father. Have you noticed this? His first thought is his stomach. His tummy is rumbling, he is hungry, and his first thought is, I'd better do something about this. And so he hatches a cunning plan. He says, I will set out, I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." I don't know if you've noticed, many commentators who've written on this passage have observed that this has nothing to do with repentance. He's not repenting. He's not a model of repentance at this point. He doesn't say, oh my, I've shamed my family. He doesn't say, I better go and apologize to my father for wishing him dead. He doesn't mention regret for a burning through a third of the family money. Rather, his whole little speech is about getting a job. So in the first century Middle Eastern culture of the day, there were two things that young man could have asked his father for. He could have asked to have been taken back as an unpaid slave, and he would work for food and board, or he could ask to be taken back as a paid craftsman and to earn a salary. He picks the latter for this reason. The young man thinks this is about money. Going through his mind is, I've wasted a third of the family inheritance. That is the problem. And so if I can earn some money, I can save the money up, and I can pay my father back, and I can earn my way into favor, and I can sort the whole problem out economically. Interesting that lots of people try something similar with God. Lots of human beings try something similar with God, right? We try and earn our way into his affections. We think to ourselves, if I'm good... If I work hard, if I attend every church meeting, if I come to the church both morning and evening and in between, if I burn myself out serving him, if I work hard enough, pray hard enough, give enough money to the away, so on and so forth, I can earn my way into God's favor and he would like me more. Of course, the problem is if we can earn our way into God's favor, then God would owe us something and we would be approaching him not as sinners in need of repentance, but uh, as people clutching at a receipt and an invoice and saying, God, have you seen what I've done? Now, you owe me. So, verse 20. So the young man got up. He went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And so he ran to his son. 
we now reach the most shocking part of, uh, of the story. Middle Eastern fathers don't run. Running is what young men do. If you, are the, uh, if you are a Middle Eastern father, if you are the patriarch of the family, the head of the family, you sit in the shade under an olive tree or something, having a nice cool drink, and you direct other people to run around you. This father probably hasn't run for decades. Um, he, furthermore, in order to run, he's going to have to lift up his robes. He'll be wearing the heavy uh, woolen ro- heavy robes that you wear in the Middle East, so he has to expose his legs in so doing. And that is deeply, deeply, deeply dishonorable in the culture. This father, this man, has been dishonored by his son. Now he's willing to dishonor himself in order to reconcile himself with his younger son. This is such a surprising part of the parable that in Arabic translations of the Bible, and I speak often in the Middle East, uh, I remember the first time I encountered this, being surprised that in Arabic translations of the Bible, this story is actually known as the story of the running father. So if you've still got your pen out and you want an accurate title for this parable, replace the one I suggested earlier with the story of the running father and your Bible will really look like a mess with all the, uh, all the comments and the pen marks in it, but there we go. Now... The father reaches his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Before the son can even speak, the father has embraced him and kissed him. And one of the things I discovered early on on trips to the Middle East is there is a lot of kissing in the Middle East. An awful lot of kissing. I can remember the first times I went to Jordan and uh, was teaching out there. And as a very reserved Brit, who my own personal comfort zone is about half a mile, I am still in therapy because six foot tall, deeply bearded Arab men would embrace me and kiss me on both cheeks. And I still have nightmares. In the Middle East of Jesus' day, a servant would kiss his master's feet. A student might kiss his teacher's, his professor's hands. But family, brothers and uh, children and so forth, they would kiss on the face. For that's a sign of, it's a sign of peace. And so the son begins his carefully prepared little speech. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Have you noticed what is going on here? The father has already offered forgiveness. He's kissed him, he's embraced him, but nevertheless the son has been rehearsing this speech for miles and miles and miles on the road. He's darn well going to give it. But I like to imagine that he gets about halfway through this prepared little speech that he's been working on before this thought suddenly occurs to him that this is no longer about becoming a hired hand. This is not about economics. It's not about re-earning enough money to repay his dad. But rather, it's not about economics. It's about broken relationships. He can't buy his way back into favor. He has to be forgiven. And forgiveness is a gift. And forgiveness is free. So the father said, verse 22, to his servants, quick, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Each gift that's mentioned there in verse 22 is costly and each one has has meaning. You know, the robe is probably one of the father's best robes, actually. And so when the the son wears it and begins walking around the village, everybody in the village is going to know whose robe it is. And the fact the younger son is wearing it tells everybody there has been reconciliation. The son is back into the family. Likewise, the sandals are very symbolic. Servants go barefoot. Sons and family wear shoes. All of this has cost the father financially. He's paid for all this stuff. But the greatest cost he has borne has been his honor. He has borne the dishonor and the humiliation that his son has heaped upon him 
And he has borne it, he's paid that price because of his love for the son, love for his youngest son. The father has taken the initiative, the father has borne all of the cost. It's the father who is the hero at the heart of this story. Now the father commands his servants, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. You know, it has been remarked upon uh, by many that the person in this story who was the most unhappy about the return of the younger son was not the older son who we're about to meet in a moment. The person who was most unhappy about the return of the younger son was, in fact, the fatted calf, um, who I like to imagine is sitting in the field munching the grass, looks up, sees the reconciliation, sees the barbecue being lit, hears wind of a roast, and realizes he is in real trouble. Now, of course, a a fatted calf is a big piece of meat. This is not some small, intimate family dinner the father is planning with him and the two sons. He's got something much bigger in mind. This is clearly a feast to which the whole village are going to be invited. You see, the son has been welcomed back into the family and reconciled, but now he has to be brought back into community and reconciled with the wider village, the wider community, among whom the son would have been a complete laughingstock. And now, at this point in the story, we meet uh, the older son once again. Verse 27, verse 25 to 27. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and, and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what, what's going on? Your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has, has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Look where the the servant places the emphasis on the father. Your your father has done this amazing thing. The translation, actually, safe and sound, is a slightly, again, not, not the best one. A better translation would almost be received with peace. Now, at this point, of course, uh, the older brother's heart sinks and his blood begins to boil because if his brother has been received with peace, it is too late. It is too late to go crashing through the door of the family house shouting, make the fool get a job. It's too late. That that ship has sailed. So now it's the older brother's turn to humiliate his father. We read verse 28. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And so the father went out and pleaded with him. For the second time this day, the father has to go out and meet a son. He has a feast to attend to. He has the whole village in attendance at the feast. He's the host. He's the the head of the family, the patriarch, but the older son, supposedly the firstborn, supposedly the grown-up, the sensible, the more responsible one, is outside making a song and dance routine and making a scene. That would be bad at the best of times, but the whole family is in attendance. Imagine how you would feel if on Christmas Day, perhaps you're there at home with your extended family, all gathered, uncles, aunts, mum, dads, grandparents, all gathered on Christmas Day, and then one of your family, maybe a brother or sister who's the black sheep of the family, you know, decides to stand outside the family home and yell insults at your mum and dad or one member of your family, and all the, all the neck curtains are twitching, all the neighbours are at their windows watching. How would you feel? Well, that's the situation going on here. And in the culture, again, we'd expect some tough discipline. One would expect a first century patriarchal Middle Eastern father to once again reach for his trusty old walking stick and just bring some discipline to bear on on this second son. But again, that's not what happens. What happens is, uh, is very different. Well, the older son answers his father, look, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. 
Look how the son, the older son, insults his father. He doesn't say beloved father or respected elder or dear dad. Instead, he just says, look, the kind of equivalent of, oi, you, old guy. His character is coming out too, have you noticed? He is as money-obsessed as the younger son. He wants what is his. You've given me nothing, he screams at his dad, to which the attentive reader needs to go, nothing? Seriously? Nothing? Verse 12, scroll back up. Verse 12, what happens? The father divided his money between them. He's already had his share of the family inheritance. And in fact, because the younger son has spent his third of the family inheritance, all the remaining family wealth technically belongs to the older son. He is literally making it up. Now, look to his complaint. Who does he want to party with? He doesn't want to party with his father, with his uh, brother, with his family. He wants to party with his friends. He wants to be his own man, just like his younger brother. In fact, I often wonder when I read this whether the older brother was actually secretly envious of his younger brother's descent into hedonism. He wished he had had the courage to do the same thing, but he hadn't. And so now he turns on his younger brother. He's attacked his dad, now he's going to attack the younger brother. He says, but when this son of yours, not my younger brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Again, we can ask a question here. Hang on a moment. How does he know that his younger brother has spent the money on prostitutes? That's not what the story says. We're told he had a nice life. Good food, parties, some new friends, shiny new camel, chrome trimming, V8 engine. The older brother is so angry, he's literally making things up. Have you ever had that experience of being so angry that the red mist descends, you're no longer thinking rationally, and you're making it up as you go along? This is where the the older brother is now. Verse 31. My son, the father said, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, I said at the start, this story was about two lost sons. Not one prodigal son, two lost sons. The younger son was separated from his father because of greed and a desire for independence, autonomy, self-centeredness. But the older brother is equally as badly lost. But in his case, he's lost because of pride and self-righteousness. Both the younger son and the older son uh, need to be reconciled to their father and be forgiven. And we know how the story of the younger son ends um, because we've just read that earlier. But what about the older son? What happens next? Well, of course, we don't know because the story stops right here at verse 32 with the older son outside in the field and the father's words hanging in the air. Why does Jesus stop? Why doesn't Jesus tell us the end of the story? Well, I think he leaves the story open because if you remember right back at the start in chapter 1, we read that his audience for this story are the Pharisees. Jesus is addressing this story, aiming it at Pharisees and tax collectors, very self-righteous, highly moralistic people. He's aiming the story at them, and he wants them to think about, how are you going to respond? And so the question is left hanging at the end of the story. See, both sons in this story treated their father like a master. Both offered to work as a hired hand. Both demanded their pay. Both wanted money when what their father wanted was sons. And to return at the end to the question that I began with, what is the gospel? Well, that right there is the very heart of the gospel. That what God wants is not slaves, but sons and daughters. See, the tragedy is 
that some people know that they're lost and far from God. I've had amazing conversations with people over the years that I have the privilege of meeting through my evangelistic work for Solas. People who know that they're lost. They know that they need God. They're desperate to find him. People like the younger brother, they know they're in a mess and they know they need help. A bit like the gentleman in Plymouth who'd worked out that money and paying the mortgage off and all this stuff just didn't cut it. Some people know they're lost and need God. Other people, like the elder brother, like the Pharisees, think that they're righteous and they think that they're basically okay. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that before we even thought of it, before we even considered him, God paid the price that we might be sons and daughters, not slaves. That price was paid by, by God the Father, but it was also paid by God the Son, by Jesus on the cross. Which brings me to one last fascinating aspect of, uh, of this, uh, this story. You know, in the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, um, there would have been another job that would have fallen to the, uh, to the older brother. And uh, the New York pastor Tim Keller, in his book on this uh, story here in Luke 15, points out that in the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, it would have been the job of the older brother to go looking for the younger one. When the younger one has run away from home, it should have been the older brother's job to uh, go and rescue, search for, bring back his uh, younger son, his younger brother. Rather than stay at home feeling superior and morally, and morally better than his younger brother, he should have been out searching. And it's interesting if you look at the other two parts of this story in Luke 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Both those stories have a searcher. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep. The woman searches for the coin. Nobody goes to search for the younger son. The older brother should have done it. He didn't. This story has a missing elder brother in it. And Tim Keller points out that the beauty of the gospel is that we have a true elder brother in Jesus, a brother who did not remain in glory by his father's side, looking at the mess we've made of our lives and complaining, but an elder brother who came to search for us, rescue us, die for us, to restore us and redeem us and bring us home. And so the question I want to leave us with as we close is just a, a little reflection this evening on where we stand with our heavenly father this evening. Are some of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, running away, or at least tempted to, uh, straining for independence, looking for security in happiness, or in our image, what people think of us, in morality, or even in, even in empty religion? Do some of us here this evening, if we're honest with ourselves, have a tendency sometimes to treat God more like a master than a father. We try and keep him at a distance. Uh, we work ourselves crazy trying to please him, trying to earn our way into his household. Has it not fully, for some of us, sunk down into our DNA that actually grace and forgiveness are free? It's free. It's very easy, but it's also very hard because if we could earn our way in, we might have something we can hold over God. And human beings have that temptation all the time. But the heart of the gospel it is about grace. The gospel is not a moral self-improvement plan. Christianity is not primarily about being good. It's about reconciliation. The gospel is God's welcome, God's gift, God's restoration. He offers new hearts, new creation, new purpose to sinful lawbreakers and to sinful law keepers. So if you are even remotely tempted to be a younger brother or sister here this evening, the message from Luke 15 for you is that God is the running father offering forgiveness come on home but then maybe there are some of us here this evening who are tempted to be elder brothers or sisters 
Maybe if we're very honest with ourselves, we've lost some of the joy of that first love of God that we had when we became Christians, and we've just allowed religion or legalism to begin creeping into our lives, or smugness or pride. A good sign that that's an issue you need to work on is if you can very easily complete the sentence in your mind, I am a better Christian than. And if there's an end to that sentence, then I think we need to come back to the foot of the cross but the good news for us, if we are elder, those of us who are tempted to being elder brothers or sisters this evening, is again the door to God's household is flung wide. The party has begun, and God is there at the door saying, come on home. And if neither of those categories describes you this evening, if you're a, a believer, a joy-filled member of God's household, there at the table, enjoying the party and what it means to be a brother or sister uh, of, the, uh, of the Most High, then reflect, of Jesus, then reflect on this, the challenge this parable makes to you. The challenge it makes to you is to welcome sinners, to welcome younger brothers and sisters and invite them in. Evangelism is such a key part of discipleship, and it's sobering to reflect that during his ministry, just as we saw at the start of Luke 15, Jesus primarily alienated religious people and he attracted irreligious people. Yet so often it's the younger brothers or sisters who are so often missing from our churches. Why is that? Let's ensure that elder brothers are not driving them away. And I opened with a story of that gentleman in uh, Plymouth who'd figured out for himself that it was time to really begin looking seriously at who God was. I want to end with one other story that I think every time I, when I read Luke 15 uh, rings in my mind. I said yesterday we had this conference uh, over at Central Baptist Church and one of the other speakers uh, there was an old friend of mine called Ben Thomas. And Ben is a medical doctor uh, from Southampton with quite an incredible testimony. And uh, his testimony was that as a young man, Ben uh, discovered growing up he was not religious really at all. He'd had a little bit of religious experience, but then he rejected that. And then as a young man, discovered that he was same-sex attracted. And as that became a bigger and bigger and bigger issue for him, he threw off any sort of uh, previous vestiges of a Christian faith and descended very deeply into a gay lifestyle. But then in his early 20s, dramatically uh, met God and began to re-examine uh, Christianity and whether its claims were true. But the big stumbling block for him, the massive stumbling block for him, was same-sex attraction. Because he figured out that if he was going to follow Christ, then he had to, uh, he had to let that go and, uh, and pursue a life that was biblically faithful and chaste. And that's a huge price to pay. Interesting question to ask ourselves this evening. What's the price we pay to following Christ? And uh, Ben worked out there was a price. And eventually, after much prayer and counseling, uh, came the moment where with his pastor, he fell to his knees and with many, many tears, as he described it yesterday, gave his life to Christ and walked away from that lifestyle. And he said he went home that night after becoming a Christian and his head spinning, he'd, uh, he'd uh, said goodbye to the boyfriend he'd been living with and closed that door and committed to following Christ. And he said it had been a day of many tears. He was utterly exhausted. He fell asleep. And that night, he said he had a dream. He said, in that dream, Jesus uh, was in that dream, and he felt Jesus saying to him, he felt Jesus walking him through a heavenly mansion and basically saying to him, Ben, these are your rooms. This is your room, this is your room, and this is your room. And that verse, in my father's house are many rooms, came to mind. He was a very much a lost younger son and found that welcome there of his heavenly father. The gospel is good news. God is a generous God. The door to God's house is flung wide. The lights are on, the music is playing, there is feasting, and there is a room for all who would follow Christ. Let us pray.
Father God, I thank you that you are the God who runs to meet us on the road. For those of us who are tempted to be uh, younger sons or daughters this evening, uh, Lord, would we have that experience of you meeting us out there on the road, running to embrace us, uh, mess and, uh, and pig uh, mess and smell and dirt and brokenness and all. Thank you that you meet us where we are and welcome us home. And Lord, if there are those of us this evening who are tempted to be older sons or daughters, tempted to be uh, self-righteous or proud or to allow empty religion or moralism to cause us to look down on others and to try and earn our way into your salvation, into your kingdom, and to hold something over you, would you again just uh, reissue that invite to us to come into the party, show us that open door, and help us lay aside our self-righteousness and our pride. And Lord, for those of us who are joy-filled followers of you this evening, would you place on our hearts those younger sons and uh, and daughters in our lives, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe colleagues, maybe neighbors who are far from you, who are absolutely far from you and want nothing to do with you. And uh, would you help us reach out to them in radical welcome? Help us ensure that the way that we speak of you isn't driving them away, but help us point them to the prodigal God who welcomes them and meets them on the road. Thank you for the generous grace there in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.